<sighs> Life's hard. Let's talk about it over some tea. Welcome to Tea and Transitions, where we serve up stories on the dynamic lives of women of color as they navigate through life's cold, lukewarm, and steamy moments. I'm Vina Vo, a planner, facilitator, and today your personal tea snob. And I'm Odelia, a writer and educator trying to not spill too much tea. So grab your favorite cup or mug and let's get right into some TNT. Hi, Vina. I'm excited for another conversation today and to find out a bit more about our tea for today, but we'll talk about that more later. Today's episode is about touch again. And I know we wanted to have two episodes on touch because both of us were, you know, talking to our communities, talking to people that we know and touch or lack of touch or differences in how we go about being uh, physical with people during the pandemic is really top of mind for people. We're missing people's presence. We're missing being around people, the sacrifices that we're making to keep our loved ones safe. And so it just felt really important to give more space in this first season of our podcast for women of color to talk about touch. And I'm really excited for Boomi and Amber's stories today and to chat a little bit more with them. Uh, but I thought that we could start off by sharing uh, two moments with each other. One moment of touch we had recently and how it felt to like actually, you know, touch someone else or have them touch us. And then one moment where we felt the absence of touch um, as like really palpable and how that made mm. us feel. So do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Um, I can go first. Yeah. Let's see. Um, so for my birthday, I had a little sleepover with one of my girlfriends and we've sort of been like quarantine friends during this time. Like, you know, we've been like saving ourselves for each other <laughs> and all of that. And we both like got tested before, but yeah, I, you know, she's for my birthday, I guess like I really wanted to spend some time with her and we've been trying to coordinate some time to like be creative with each other. So I remember when we like said goodbye, we just like, hugged each other and I remember before when we hugged like she just gave me one of these like light hugs like very light pats because usually when people hug me like that I'm like okay I'll respect your boundaries but this time I'm like no we just had a sleepover we're gonna we're gonna hug like real people here so um yeah it was just really nice and I think it was like a special moment in our friendship a little bit to get to the sleepover phase I think that's a big moment for me in my adult friendships to get to that point Wow, I hope someone out there is saving themselves for me like that. <laughs> uh, uh, the absence of touch for me and how palpable that is, it's just like when I see pictures of my nieces, I have three nieces and um, the youngest ones, I just really, they're twins. I haven't spent a ton of time with them because they were born and then um, COVID happened and then I was out of the country or I was out of the country and then COVID happened. Anyway, so I just haven't really been able to spend a ton of time with them. And so I guess I really miss just like being with them and like holding their little tiny bodies. They're kind of big now, but still. And I just love this age. They're almost two. And it's such a great, I guess I, I really, really love this age being an aunt. <laughs> well, not, I don't know. I'm sure it's tough for parents uh, during this time, but being an aunt and like just holding them and like playing with them and them not being able to talk back at you or that. I mean, it's just really nice. I love this age and they're just so fun. And so I think just seeing their pictures makes me really bummed and sad that I can't um, be around them. But hopefully soon, 
Yeah, what about you? Yeah, I hope to I hope to get to meet them sometime too. They are um, menaces. They're so fun, but they are menaces. Oh, I love it. Other. You know, like but it could be fun to like get in some trouble with oh, them. And yeah. like, it, it was their idea. You oh, know? they're Just so like, bad. They're so bad. I love it. I love how bad and chaotic uh, they are. They're so great. Oh, uh, love it. <laughs> um for me, I'll start with the absence of touch. So you know, every year uh, for listeners, we this is our fourth year of doing our show, This Is My Body, where we take a cohort of women of color through writing and performance workshops. They develop a five-minute original one-woman show on the theme of their body. And it's like one of my favorite times of year. I love it so much. And we did the first two years in person. And then this is our second year doing it virtually. And when we had our first workshop with them um, to talk about vulnerable storytelling, it was still so powerful, but I missed being in person. I missed, you know, the hugs that happen afterwards, you know, like being in relationship with people, if, you know, they're crying or they're laughing or high fives or anything. And the second year we had that in my home and we had people come to the living room uh, space in my home and just holding space physically for these women as we're talking about stories that we've been told to keep to ourselves because no one wants to hear them, but we're birthing them in community together. I just really missed like being in that physical space together. And I'm so excited for this year, but you know, I long for that time that we could be in person again with the women um, in that show. So that, you know, really showed up for me and made yeah. me miss just touch. Uh, but thinking about, you know, touch recently is, uh, you know, I recently went through a move, still going through a move as I look around at these boxes everywhere around me. And one of my friends came to help me move. And they're like part of my little two person pod. And I hugged them afterwards, because I was just so grateful that, you know, in the middle of all the things they had going on, too, that they stopped and helped me for an entire day, um, move and just like hug them tightly. and just felt so grateful to be hugging another human to feel cared for because I'm, you know, I've been living really far away from home for a while. And, you know, my dad always feels, you know, bad, like, even though, you know, adult in my 30s, you know, he always wants to help me move. And so just like having someone to help me when I was feeling so overwhelmed with my move, um, and just, you know, starting over in a new place again, and just feeling that support, but also being able to like, physically feel that support through that hug mm -hmm. as well. Um, just like really made me feel like grounded and like cared for and, and grateful. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hug you. Yes, yes. Have you been saving yourself for me? I have. I have been saving myself for you. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I think it's going to be a good time. I'm so excited. Are you ready? We should start a countdown clock. Yes, no, we should just like count down. I'll just put it in the corner on one of my boxes before they, <laughs> they disappear. <laughs> and for listeners, I offered to help Odelia like four times. And these. I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> and, go ahead. <laughs> and, and like every time I was like, hey, you want me to come over? Hey, you want me to come over? Hey, do you need help? My, 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 uh, my offer was ignored. Eventually I called her and then she's just like, I'm not ignoring you. I just have a ritual. I'm like, all right, I appreciate that. Just tell me that next time. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure for other people, especially women of color who are listening, asking for support is hard. And I developed just this hard shell around asking for help because people would always 
make me feel in the past that like you don't need help you know doing the whole like strong black woman trope mm-hmm. like you know you've got this like you know you're strong you'll make it through it's like no I'm asking for help because I need help so you know when that was the response I got so often uh in formidable years uh like formative years of my life I just started shutting down like I didn't ask people for help I preferred to be the person giving help you know I don't really reach out you know um and that's something that I'm beginning to unlearn so I feel overwhelmed when people ask me like do you need help it's very hard for me to form the words yes around Mm. that and sometimes people just need to barge in and be like hey I'm here or just like send you money for food or like sending over this and 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 sometimes that has just been uh better than asking me if I need help because it's very hard for me to answer Mm -hmm. that without going through like years of just feeling like people weaponized um you know, the vulnerability of me asking for help. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. And I, I think I, I used to struggle with that too. I think there's also this like, you know, we were raised with this notion that we should, we should be strong, independent women. We don't need people to take care of us. And I was like, you know what? That was also a lie. I, yes, I can be independent. Yes, I can take care of myself, but I think other people should take care of me too. You know, like, why not? It's like, I spend so much of my, you know, we spend so much time taking care of others. And I love doing that. But we should also let others take care um, take care of us. And I, it's you know, some I, it still surprises me to hear you say that because I feel like I learned how to ask for help, um, kind of by, kind of through you because you always were the one that were, was like offering help to me, and um, yeah, and I was like, oh, okay, if someone's gonna offer, that means they want to help, so I should just, I should be willing to like receive it. So I feel like, and I thought you were pretty good about asking for help when you needed it as well. I'm sure there's things that you still are unlearning for yourself. But from my perspective, I've always felt like you were really great about being able to ask for help when you needed it. And like giving, you also would give people very concrete things that they can do to help you, which I think is very helpful. Like I remember when my mom was, you know, going through um, chemotherapy, like I was having a really hard time and I remember just thinking, you know, a lot of people reached out and were like, what can I do? How can I help? And I was like, let me make a list, <laughs> you know, because I'll just make a list and then you all can pick from this list if you really want to help. But yeah, you're right. Sometimes I feel like the burden becomes upon the person who you're saying, oh, how can I help? It's like, well, just just send me money, just send me food, just do something as opposed to asking how can you help, maybe offer some suggestions. So I'll, I'll, be, yeah, I'll do better I, next I time. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and I'll, obviously, I know that we're gonna, you know, see each other, and you know, you'll help me decorate and think about things like that, and you know, and and that makes me feel good to to know that, you know, in my perception, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm still not great at that, but to to hear you talk about it, I'm like, oh, okay, I've grown, and you know, people have noticed that growth, so that's good too. Not only have you grown and people noticed, but people are learning from you. So all the best things. All the all best, best things. things. All right, so I know we have a ton of amazing stories that we want to get through today. So I'll just jump right in to talking about our tea for today. Are you ready? Oh, yeah, I'm really ready. <laughs> in my hand, I've got it. Um, this one has my favorite color so far, of course. So what I chose is a ceremonial matcha. And this specific one is from Wazuka, in, uh, which is a region located a little bit outside the city of um, Kyoto. And I got this tea on my trip to Japan. My, my family and I were visiting and they were doing, you know, their touristy things. And I was like, I want to go visit a tea farm. But it was a trek to get out here. And what I love about Japan is that none of the signs are in English. 
I don't think they try to make it super easy and accommodating to tourists, which I appreciate. I was like, oh, I love this. They're making you work. So I really just had to rely on my very, very basic um, understanding of the Japanese language and like match the the letters um, with like the pictures that were shown. And so to get to this uh, tea farm, I took like, I don't know, two trains and like a bus and it took me maybe like an hour and a half. And oftentimes I wasn't sure if I was going in the right direction, but I managed to make it like by, by, you know, sheer, sheer just luck and skill. But anyways, so this is a ceremonial matcha and I want to talk a little bit about what is ceremonial versus culinary. So whenever you ceremonial is like the kind of, uh, in very simple terms is the tea that you drink. And then culinary is the kind that you like put in food and like lattes and stuff. Um, and I, based on some of my research, the, in Japan, they don't really categorize it like ceremonial versus culinary. There's like actually five different grades of uh, matcha. And um, it is all like rated by like the vibrancy of the color, how young the leaves are and things of that sort. But to make things simple for today, we'll just be talking about ceremonial and culinary, which I learned is more of like a Western way to categorize it. Ceremonial is made from the youngest leaves. So the very youngest and most tender leaves. So what that means is that there's more of like a chlorophyll content and therefore it's more green and vibrant. So the one that you're drinking today is more green and vibrant than say like a culinary one that you would get from like Costco or something. Oh my gosh, we've ended this tea's life before it even began. <laughs> well, I, don't, uh, I wouldn't say that. Um, yeah, but it is like very delicate um, tea leaves. And so culinary, you can, they can still have young leaves, but they may have some older ones. Um, so yeah. So for matcha, for me, um, matcha tends to have like this earthy, grassy, and for me, sometimes like an even fishy smell to it. And um, that's like the, the ceremonial when you drink it like with just wa hot water. And um, the culinary tends to be a bit more like a bit more potent, and a bit more bitter. So that's the kind of taste difference between the two. And so I chose ceremonial matcha because um, of for, for touch. Because just thinking about how to make a cup of matcha, you have, you know, your matcha whisk, you have, you place your matcha in a bowl, and then um, you put in some hot water and whisk it with your hands. And you have to, you have to whisk it in a certain way that gets it to foam. And so when you do it correctly, there's like this very thin, beautiful layer of foam at the top. And, you know, there's no milk or anything like that. There's no foaming agent. It's just you, the whisk and the powder that makes this foam. And the first time I did this, I could not get the freaking foam. It was so brutal. Like I was doing this at the tea house where um, they were teaching us and it was just like not happening. Uh, and anyways, I, I love the whole ceremonial aspect behind it. I don't know enough about it to share on here, but would encourage anyone who's interested to look up videos on YouTube about it. It's beautiful. And there's so much like gorgeous history with it. Uh, we could spend a whole episode like talking about um, yeah, I had the culture. pleasure of I had the pleasure of um, you know witnessing that um, you know ceremony with the matcha when I was in Japan because 
you know, my life goal is going to countries a couple of months after you go. You know, so I did that with South Korea and I did that with Japan. Just, I need you to go first to tell me where to eat. <laughs> um, and like, no, seriously, I'm just like, where did you eat? Um, and it, it was really beautiful. And like my sister and I just, you know, um, loved it. And there's, there's also something about experiencing something in the country mm-hmm. of origin that helps me appreciate it even more when I see it um, outside of that region. Definitely. Speaking of origin, I wanted to share about the origin of matcha because I think it's super, super interesting. It's actually started in China with this tradition of like putting tea leaves into bricks. And um, they did this to make it easier to transport. There are illustrations of people carrying these like bricks of tea on their backs and then transporting it to trade. That way they can pack more tea and it also um, prevents it from rotting as much. So it's all packed in and really easy to transport as opposed to imagine having like a big bag, you know, over your back, you're not gonna get as much tea. So the bricks then are shaved down and then that's how you get like the powder. So matcha literally means rubbed tea. So this happened in, you know, this kind of, this practice started in China, but a Zen Buddhist monk brought some of the seeds back from China and then planted them in Kyoto and then began like cultivating this tea plant in a very different way. And so um, there's a different way that matcha is harvested compared to other teas and how it's different is that like three weeks prior to like harvesting the leaves, uh, farmers will cover the tea plant with like bamboo mats or tarps to prevent it from getting direct sunlight. Because if there's like too much direct sunlight, it can trigger the overproduction of chlorophyll, which will then age the um, leaf faster or make it like darker. So after that, after, you know, the period where they're ready to be plucked, they're picked, steamed, air dried, sorted, then they're de-stemmed and de-veined. So like, you know, so much work goes into this and then they're grounded into this like beautiful powder. And that's why matcha is so expensive compared to like other teas because it is so, so labor intensive. I'm actually having, um, I am actually having like a latte right now with uh, culinary matcha that I got from Costco and it's great. And so I, you know, I, I really love matcha. I, I don't really drink ceremonial matcha very much, um, but I love matcha lattes. I know that makes me sound like such a, such a plebe, but that's matcha. I love it. Also, I didn't know what the name meant. So I didn't either. I, I had to do some research. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> love that. Um, I actually, I don't know. I think I've had a matcha latte once, but now I want to like go outside and get one. Oh, don't go outside. I will make you one. Oh, great. Even better. You get a matcha latte and a hug. (laughs) I will add that to the countdown list, like countdown to matcha latte. Yeah, just remind me to bring the matcha. I will. Oh, no. Now this involves work. Uh, Okay. Now I have to set myself a reminder, but that's that's okay. Uh, But yeah, let's hop into some of our stories for today. I'm really excited about them. Um, our first one, you know, comes from an artistic director at a, a dance studio, and it really made me think of how much I miss my dance studio during this time. Uh, you know, it closed down right before the pandemic, um, but it's one that my cousin owned, and you know, she's moved away from the Bay now. But it's just like that home for me and that community around the the dance studio, and we all still reach out to each other, but was definitely thinking about that when I listened to Bumi's piece. So Bumi Patel is the queer Desi artistic director of Patel Dance Works, uses she, they pronouns. Uh, They create work at the intersection of embodied research and activism. Her work involves dancing, 
choreographing, curating, educating, writing, and scholarship as a pursuit for liberation with the time and space to decolonize the body. I've frequently been told that I need to be a person outside of my career, have a personality beyond what I do. This is usually said condescendingly and as though I put too much into it. I take my work seriously and myself less seriously, which is to say that what I do is inextricably linked to who I am. I am a dancer and a choreographer, and it feels impossible to separate that from a me that doesn't name my profession. I am as much a mover and an artist as I am brown, queer, a femme. This intersection has informed every moment of my art making. So of course, my art making is an integral part of my identity. I wouldn't want it to be any other way. James Baldwin said that artists are here to disturb the peace. And for me, that permeates all facets of my life. As I write this, it has been over 200 days that I have been sheltering in place due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent response on the part of the bodies in charge. Right now, there is an explosion of new COVID-19 cases, even as many other nations are making serious progress toward eradicating this illness, and that is frustrating. It is frustrating and heartbreaking to see so much unnecessary suffering and death caused by the immense failures of our political and public health systems. There cannot be a second wave when we are still riding the first. I feel overwhelmed by the problem and powerless before it. In February, I couldn't figure out how to stop being sad. March nearly drowned me in unbecoming that which I knew, undoing the busy and the hustle, unable to rehearse in shared space effortfully teaching through a screen without the ability to offer young dancers physical feedback on their dance training. It's been half a year that I haven't experienced the sensation of partnering, the joy of flying through studio space with other dancers, the sticky warmth of the air after taking or teaching a dance class. I miss the touch of people I miss the weight of another's body against mine. I miss the physical intimacy of partnering. April asked, now what is left? April said, look, so many things. May said, your body is still yours. The ability to communicate care through touch is lost on virtual connection. The skill of knowing what someone is saying by the grip of their fingers on your forearm right before they throw their weight into you is unknowable online. A few weeks ago, I had a virtual performance of a work that I've been making during the pandemic. It was a mess of contradictions. There was an audience watching, but I could not watch the audience. There was the high of praise and the low of turning off my computer and being alone in my quiet house. There was the miss of touch, 
constant and ever-changing. It wasn't good or bad. It was different. Sitting at home, I am frequently overwhelmed by the strength of my desire to feel the weight of another dancer, to cultivate the intimacy of closeness in partnering, to sense the trust and care in moving together. This isn't like the intimacy of sex. The intimacy of partnering elicits a different kind of connection, mutual trust and dialogue. I don't know when we will partner again. I don't know when we will fly again. I don't know when I will become again. But I am here, dreaming of the weight of a dance partner, the hug of a long-separated friend, the touch of a dance teacher to guide me toward the movement. Boomi, welcome. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Really looking forward to discussing your piece and going more in depth. And, you know, first of all, like I'm really big on just soothing voices and I feel like your voice is really soothing. And uh, I'm sure all of the people who take any of your dance classes feel the same way. Uh, but to, you know, kick us off, one of the things that stood out for me is your use of a James Baldwin quote. And one of the reasons it stood out to me is I am a huge just James Baldwin, like so passionate about his work, fan. And I have this beautiful painting, like original canvas painting of his uh, by an artist I love, Morgan Overton. Uh, shout out to Morgan. And it just, it reminds me often when I look at it, how much his role is in the work of being a writer. And there's a piece in I Am Not Your Negro where he talks about uh, being a witness. That so some people are like actors that are close to what's happening and then other people are witnesses. And it's their job to describe and to really help us understand what's going on. So you quote James Baldwin as saying, artists are here to disturb the peace. And we're further into the pandemic now since you wrote your piece. How have you continued to engage with and understand Baldwin's words? Thank you um, so much for this question. And also thank you for um, welcoming my writing to this episode. Um, I'm really excited to share this. Um, this James Baldwin quote, uh, it is it is actually hanging right above my desk where I wrote the piece um, that I submitted and I look at it every day and I, I just, um, I think about the way in which the things that I do disturb the piece because that's how we evolve and change. Um, over the last year or 13 months or so, I think there has been a sort of reckoning in the performing arts Um or at least in, in the world of dance that I work in and what I've seen of um, the world of theater. I think that a lot of artists, dance artists, who, um, you know, at the, at the onset of the pandemic kind of lost everything um, and, and started to really question a lot of the normalized practices um, in the field and engage with conversation about how to make shifts and how to make change. Um, because while, you know, there's some semblance of peace, maybe, um, depending on who you ask, 
there was a need to disturb that. Um, in my own work, I've been involved with a collective of dance artists called Dancing Around Race to interrogate the structures that we currently have um, in terms of power and privilege in in dance and the performing arts, um, and to advocate for change by holding conversations. A lot of them have been online this past year, um, curating performances that prioritize and center the voices of BIPOC artists, um, things like that. And I think that um, another uh, another big thing that I've seen is dance artists questioning labor practices and questioning um, accountability or lack thereof, questioning how we make these spaces where we work safe and equitable. And I think what's really been revealed is that many people are in the arts because we love the thing that we do, but it is still a job and we do still deserve to be safe and seen in those spaces. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about this question is that I've, I've been doing a lot more writing, um, than dancing, I would say, during during this time. And I, I hope the things I've been writing and putting out into the world disturb the peace. Um, I have an article coming out soon in a local publication to the Bay Area called In Dance about invisible labor and lip service activism in dance. So hopefully that will instigate some conversations. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, uh, Boomi. Just like thinking about like invisible labor, there's there's so much there, and you know the arts is really just important. And like you said, things are going away. Like we've seen a lot of closing of many dance studios across the country too. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more too about like how you've been talking about the importance of preserving the art um, in relation to some of the ways that artists are pushing back um, and thinking about unions and thinking about the invisible labor that they're doing. Yeah, I, ooh, I love this question. I, I think that we have seen so much loss um, and I want to recognize how important it is to acknowledge that loss. It's, it's incomprehensible at times. Um, and the flip side is that I also think we've seen an empowering or an empowerment of artists that we maybe wouldn't have seen in the world before the pandemic because we were, or I was, along with a lot of dance friends, I guess, and colleagues, sort of in this like hustle, this grind, this like competition with one another to get the jobs, get the grants, all of this. And because of the pandemic, we're all at home with these minuscule budgets, but anyone can put anything up online. Um, and I've seen young dancers trying out choreography and seeing if that's something that they're interested in and sharing it on Instagram or on TikTok, things like that. And I've seen established artists really um, having to shake up their practices to learn something brand new because we're in such different circumstances now. And the pandemic definitely didn't level the playing field. Um, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying that, but I, I do think it created a type of access to sharing creative work um, 
that that I don't know that we regularly have seen in the world pre-COVID, um, where presenting live art is kind of predicated on the presenters in performing art spaces accepting your work or programming your work or funders choosing your art to get the money or the stage. Um, everyone's living room has become a stage and, and I hope we don't lose that. Um, because just despite the loss or alongside the loss, I do think there has been a shift and a change. Um, I think that Art will persevere because people need it. And I think this year more than ever, it it's kind of been revealed how much people need it. Um, but I hope that I hope that these big changes toward equity and toward better labor practices um continue to go deeper as we start to move back toward our ability to present and view um live performance art. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love live performances, but what I think has been really amazing during this time is the opening and the access that is, has provided to a lot of folks who never had access to it before. So I think, you know, like what you were saying, how our living room has become a stage. I think that's such a beautiful way to put it. And Odelia and I actually put on a show every year. And for the first two years that we did it, it was all in person. It was this magical experience. You know, you felt that um, that energy, that love, like the heart of the audience come through. And that made such a huge difference. And so when the pandemic hit in 2020, we were like thinking, you know, should we even do the show? Because it was such a big audience participation sort of environment. But we made it virtual. And because we made it virtual, we were able to open it to anyone, like all women of color who wanted to apply. We had people applying from different states, even different countries, and we put on this performance. Um, so I think in this year, again, we're doing that same thing. And it's just been amazing to see the amount of folks and diversity that we can attract and bring in that we weren't able to, weren't able to bring in before. So in that way, I think, you know, seeing how we can um, provide more access and more involvement from folks because of going virtual has been something that has been really eye-opening, eye-opening to me personally. Definitely. I th think especially it really hit me when someone in their application who is in the Bay, which is where people typically like the women of color come from who are in the show said, oh, you know, I've been really interested in the show, but, you know, I have limited mobility and this, you know, the fact that you all are doing this virtual allows me to be able to do that. And that really sat with me. I'm like, wow, like what has, you know, what else are we doing that we need to continue to push ourselves on to make sure that it's really accessible for people? Because we often forget how inaccessible so many things in the world are to people, like how we navigate, how we might be able to get to places or, um, you know, go from one spot to another isn't the same for people. And to provide a little bit more equal access virtually, I hope we can translate that virtual access to in-person access so we don't just, you know, say, world's open up again. Sorry for people who now can access virtually, like we're going back to how things were. And, you know, that reminds me again, 
people who are echoing like a return to normal, it's like normal for who? Like we need to actually think about what we have learned and what we have experienced during the pandemic and being, you know, inside and having to navigate things differently, virtually, online, you know, in close spaces, um, you know, with just ourselves or, or one other person maybe, and take that into what I hope is like a next iteration uh, of what we want the world to be in. Yeah, I I think about that um, piece that Arundhati Roy wrote pretty early in the pandemic about how the pandemic is a portal. And I think about the image at the very end where she says, we can walk through this portal dragging the carcasses of a lost world, something like that. Um, Or we can walk through it lightly with very little ready to imagine a new future. Um, Yeah, that's, that sticks with me. There is a lot I feel like we need to leave behind. And I think what's exciting is this presents an opportunity for us to just reimagine what's possible. And so just one of the lines that you had in your piece that I really loved was, I don't know when we'll partner again. And that's a line that always just sticks with me every time I hear your piece. And so I'm curious, you know, now that, you know, vaccines are rolling out and hopefully we're getting to the end of that portal what are you thinking about in terms of partnering? Like what will partnering look like to you um, on the other side? I think there's something so um, simultaneously empowering and nurturing about sharing weight with someone, um, even in the most simple counterbalances. And and I think about that often because I I dance in in this one room in my apartment um, where last March my partner and I took all of the furniture out of this room and we were like, great, this is the dancing room. But I, I've been like leaning against the wall a lot when I take class online and just imagining like that the wall is another person who might be able to receive my, my body, my weight. And I'm looking forward to that. And at the same time, I'm also looking forward to like giving my friends a hug, like that, that sort of weight. And as I was thinking about that line, I remembered a piece that I made in, I think, 2017. And it started like before the audience came into the space. And so we were already on stage and, and then the audience came in and they sat down while this was happening, but it was a duet with me and another dancer. And we stood in a, in an embrace, in a hug, just holding each other, slowly rotating for like six minutes. And like that kind of like safety and intimacy almost, I almost crave that more than the, than the flying or the lifting or, um, you know, any of those other things that sort of immediately came to mind when I thought of um, partnering. Yeah, when I was thinking of partner, you know, I was thinking about anyone, like just like another human being standing next to me, um, you know, being able to go through life together with me. And that line also like stands out to me, like really like makes me like my voice, like catch in my throat, even thinking about it, just like longing to partner again and to do that life together. 
as someone who has, I think I mentioned the past in this podcast, like I have such a problem with affection, not that like I'm against it. It's just really goes against my upbringing, but it's like this constant battle between like my upbringing and like my nature of, you know, being intimate, being close to someone. So when you were talking about like feeling the counterweight of someone against you, it just made me really think about um, that and how I need to continue kind of pushing myself to let go of that weird boundary that I have on affection. And yeah, I, we have a little slogan on this podcast that Odelia came up with called bring hugs back. So that's definitely something that, you know, we are hoping to be able to do once everyone's cleared and ready to go in for the hug. I'm very, I'm very ready to bring hugs back. <laughs> yeah, we need to make t-shirts, I think, with that slogan. I think that would be a great I way. We do. I think we do. I just, it has come up almost every single podcast episode. So it's clearly on people's mind, this like partner again, this hug, this just like the weight of another person. Because as soon as you feel that weight, you know you're not alone. And I think there's so many people right now who need to feel like they're not alone. And we're just so close to that moment. There's something mutual about a hug, right? Because when you go in for it, one person doesn't just sort of like, they don't, like you wouldn't just like melt onto someone like you're melting butter or something like that. Or maybe you would, maybe that's, that's how you hug someone. But there is this sort of like, I'm holding me and I'm holding you. And we're both doing that at the same time. And it, I don't know, maybe it creates a sort of camaraderie. Yeah, definitely. And a friend of mine um, taught me this technique that she learned from someone else, but it's you embrace, so you're hugging, but then you also take collective breaths together. So you're taking like three deep, long breaths together. And it's such an intimate um, moment. And, it, you know, it's much more timely. Like it's not like a whole quick hug and let go, but it's like we're sitting here with each other. We're like feeling each other's breath and it's just really amazing. So I um, would like to offer anyone who, you know, once you're clear for the hug, you should also try that. It's such a beautiful feeling and experience. I love that. I'm writing that down right now. Yeah. It's almost like a co-regulation. Like you're with someone and there's not only the like verbal, but there's the physical, mm-hmm. like you can feel each other breathing and feel that movement of like the chest and the rib cage. Yeah. It's a very mindful moment. And it's like really taking the time to be with someone because we've all had awful hugs. And, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you all recall maybe your worst like last hug and what that did to your psyche? <laughs> I feel like the hugs that I've gotten where someone sort of like just like pats me on the shoulder have been some of the worst hugs in my memory where it's like, I don't think you want to be a part of this hug and that's okay. (laughs) We didn't need to hug. (laughs) Yeah. I think I have some friends who are just like not as comfortable with hugging and so, or like maybe not used to it. And so usually I'll go in for the hug and they're like kind of taken aback and they're like, oh, okay. And then so you do that cold, like lean forward butt out, pat, pat. That's, that's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, so awkward. <laughs> I would say my least favorite hug are um, car side hugs. You know, I'm just like, just, oh, get out those of the are the just get out of the car and hug me. You know, yeah. I just, every moment where someone tries to do that, but my favorite hug that I get right now is my friend's daughter uh, will run up and then she'll just kind of stand there to the side, which is like her, 
like acceptance that I'm going to like, and her permission for me to hug her. Uh, so it's not like a, like a hands out kind of thing. It's just like, she'll run up and just like stand there to the side of me. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Hug time. That's super cute. Kids are so good at, at maybe at physical affection. I don't know if that's the, the thing I'm trying to say, but that hearing that reminds me of my nephew um, who is four years old and I, I was able to see him with a quarantine and all of these things um, safely. And he would come up to me and say, can we smush? And that just <laughs> meant he wanted a hug. <laughs> oh, what, one other thing that I really loved about your piece is you were like imagining what each month was asking you and telling you. So now that, you know, we're nearing the end of March, what have the first three months of 2021 asked you or told you? I think that January said nothing. February said it's okay to feel sad. And March is asking, what do you need to feel safe? I would love to hear a little bit more about that March question. Um, what is it like? How are you thinking about safety right now? Yeah, it's that that question of what what I need to feel safe feels so important right now because I am really excited about vaccine rollouts. And I'm really excited about schools starting to reopen and all of these things starting to return. And I, I feel like I have to keep checking in with myself about what I need to feel okay going out into the world. Like thinking about outdoor dining, which I, I haven't done in a year in this whole time. Um, do I feel comfortable being close to people who are eating without masks on outside of a restaurant? I don't know. The answer to that question changes every day. And looking at, um, looking at information that's coming out of the CDC, for example, I, I feel like I have to be aware of all of the information and use that as a way to make choices and know that not everyone is going to make the same choices that I do. And so coming back to this question of what do, what do I need to feel safe in the world? Most of the time, or all of the time, really, that means continuing to wear two masks when I go to the grocery store, because that's an indoor place, and there are usually a lot of people there. In terms of dining outdoors, I might not feel comfortable sitting at like a restaurant where there is a server, but I do really enjoy picking up takeout and then going to a park and eating it on a blanket, and there might be other people there, but it doesn't, I feel safer doing that. Um, those are two kind of basic examples, but that's, yeah, that's where I feel present right now. That's where I feel like my attention is, um, cultivating, cultivating safety as things are changing. Yeah. I love that cultivating safety as things are changing. And, you know, I'm, um, part of a, a black women's group here in Oakland and we were journaling about that, uh, very recently about what are the things that have changed about our lives that we want to uh, keep? And what are we anxious about as things start to open? And just even thinking about that, I think is a really good practice. And I would encourage all of our listeners 
to think about that right now, whether it's journaling or just meditating on it or talking with friends and family, like what are you feeling like there are things that we're so excited about, like bringing hugs back, but there are things that we are anxious about um, as the world reopens and we need to start having uh, open and honest conversations about those things as well. Absolutely. And I think continuing a practice of checking in with the people around us or the people that we want around us. Um, Right now I'm in a creative process and we've been rehearsing virtually. And because there there are two other people in the cast, because we've all um, been able to get vaccinated because of the jobs that we have, um, we're thinking about having rehearsals where we're together outside. And one of the agreements that we've come to is that we always default to um, the most precautious uh, feeling of any of us. So whoever needs the most precautions, that's the default or that's what we, we enact um, so that we're never asking someone to give up the things that they need to feel safe. Yeah, that's so important. And I, and I think that's a a good point for us to kind of meditate on. Um, Thank you so much, Bumi, for being with us today. And just, yeah, let's all leave thinking about that as at the end of the day, we're all we got. Have we seen anything during the pandemic is there are many ways that we can't trust leadership and people in positions of power to keep us safe. So we need to keep us safe. So as we're, you know, we're very much still in a pandemic and as things start to open back up, like let's continue to ask ourselves like the most vulnerable amongst us, like what do they need to continue to be safe and know that we are all ready to sacrifice them just because things are opening up. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this. This was absolutely wonderful. I'm especially excited to introduce our next story from Amber Butts, who is, uh, you know, I have the honor to call a dear friend, um, someone who, you know, lives very close to me uh, that we're often in community with, and I consider her a sister. Amber is a writer, organizer, grief worker, and educator from Oakland, California, who believes that Black folk are already whole. Her work centers Black children, Black mamas, and Black elders. It asks big and small questions about how we move towards actualizing spaces that center tenderness, nuance, and joy while living in a world reliant on our terror. The colonial project that is the United States necessitates particular violences are enacted on Black, Brown, and Indigenous bodies. Our bodies, which are perceived to be weapons and mules simultaneously, are represented as separate things unworthy of care. This world demands that we produce in isolation while our basic needs go unmet and as folks who look like us are murdered. It expects us to continue on without complaint and be at the hands of white imaginations. Of course, all of this is familiar. Our bones know it. Our memories know it. Some of our grandmother's hands and backs still tell this story to this day. As I write this, the air quality in Oakland is at dangerously high levels due to uncontained wildfires in Oregon and Northern California. As I write this, the air quality in Oakland is at dangerously high levels 
due to uncontained wildfires in Oregon and Northern California. So on top of the impacts of COVID-19, some of us are quite literally struggling to catch our breath. And it is not lost on me that trees used as sites and tools of violence burn too. This truth doesn't devastate me though. It reminds me to cast back towards the ways our folks have always navigated isolation, policing, and governmental threat. Ancestors with their tired legs and tortured backs tell me that while it is true they were often prevented from touching one another, from remaining intact, they did touch each other, even when the touch wasn't physical. This is worth remembering. They sang songs that the wind carried. They made and ate food from home. They refused to let this world deny them of another thing, each other. Even in the most terrific conditions, our folks have cultivated the most intimate forms of touch and connection. In the age of extraction, capitalism, and white supremacy, we are told that this isn't and wasn't possible, that our bodies don't feel pain, that we are hypersexual, animalistic, one-quarter human, that our bodies are always readily available for public perusal, examination, and consumption. It also says those other bodies deserve privacy and protection, even as they protest mandates for face coverings, claiming constitutional rights violations. This is for those of us who have been told that we are exaggerating when we knew best and most articulately the violence wielded on our bodies. For those of us who sit with the ways we have been harmed, attacked, and silenced. For those of us who miss hugs and yet won't risk spreading this virus further. For those of us who are sick and disabled and are witnessing this country pretend like our living is optional, an afterthought, some unimportant thing. Those of us who are told weddings, parties, and vacations are more urgent than our lives. White supremacy in all its iterations demands that more people die. We know this. In these moments, may we praise and return to our bodies. May we choose into wondrous pleasure. May we remember that the specialized touch we are yearning for is possible through us. How might a world where we fight for our lives and our connections look? not at the expense of other lives, but in service of them? How might we form remote grieving circles that support us through our toughest moments? Where are the places where we can name our anxieties? How might we reimagine touch that recognizes where we are now, with over 20,000 deaths in the U.S. and almost 100,000 deaths globally? What is possible when we pause? What is possible when we get more honest about the ways we are complicit in killing each other? Thank you, Amber, for being with us today. You know, I'm so excited. Uh, it's always great getting to sit down and chat with you. I always learn so much. And just reflecting on the piece, I think about one of the greatest gifts of having your friendship in my life is how often you remind me that I am a priority. And if I'm prioritizing myself, that means that I'm allowing myself to rest. I'm allowing myself to pause. And that is okay. And it needs to be okay for other people as well. And in your piece, you ask all of us to think about what's possible when we pause. So what's been possible for you in being still in these moments? 
That's such a great question. Um, I think what's possible for me, what I'm noticing is um, kind of a more intimate relationship with myself and what um, what is happening both in my body and in my mind and trying to make more of a connection with my heart. Um, I've recently been thinking about learning how to bird watch because I'm noticing birds way more when I'm like slowing down. Usually I'm going from one place to another and I'm in a rush um, because I think that it'll take me less time than it takes me to get there. And lately what I've been doing is just like trying to leave early or not have a destination in mind. So I'll get in the car, I'll drive to a park and then I'm just there. So like today I was like on a street driving and um, I saw this little baby crow fly right in front of the car all the way up to this telephone pole and it had another bird I think in its mouth and the bird was the birds the bird size was bigger than the like crow's head and that was so interesting to me and I feel like if I you know if I was driving faster um I probably wouldn't have noticed the bird and it just like gave me a moment to be like oh life. Life is still happening. I would definitely want to get in on that with you. I've been trying to learn more about birds as well. I want to get to the point where I can recognize their song because they're just, they're just so unique. And this is actually kind of funny, but um, my alarm clock is also like a bird song. It's just like birds chirping because, you know, that makes it a bit more relaxing than the usual like alarm sound. But then sometimes I have birds like right by my window that also like chirp. And sometimes I can't tell which one's which. It's like, is it time mm-hmm. to wake up? Yes, yeah, are the birds or is it my alarm? <laughs> yeah. Birds are amazing. They're so intelligent. They um, have like a lot of like communal practices that are really cool. They have these signals, um, not just in the ways that they fly, but also when they're gathering food, how they make nests. They make nests from like literally any and everything from plastic, from um, hair, from old leaves, from pieces of paper, from litter. It's, it's fascinating. I need to learn more about birds. I'm just sitting here listening to both of you talk about (laughs) them. And, you know, it's uh, amazing the things that we notice uh, when we're still. Vina, what's the last thing you noticed when you just like sat still or paused? That's really funny because I've been having a really hard time sitting still and pausing. Like I got my vaccine a few days ago and I was not feeling well the next day. I was just really tired. And, you know, I was telling my friends how tired I was and people were like, you just need to rest. And I was like, I don't know how to rest. Like, what do I do when I rest? What should I be doing while I rest? Um, But the last thing I can really, really remember is when I would just go on these walks around my neighborhood and seeing how the leaves would move with the wind. It was just kind of bending at the will of nature. So I thought that was a really cool thing to think about that, like, no matter how hard, you know, we try to fight things, like we just kind of have to go along with what the external forces bring to us. So I think that's the last thing I noticed. What about you? Uh, I think for me, the last thing I noticed, so, you know, I recently moved and, you know, I've been taking some time just to spend with myself and just like sitting there. And I just love just like 
sitting in the stillness and being really aware of my body uh, and just how grateful I am of my body taking me through this pandemic and where we're at now, you know, about to be in April and just sitting in that gratefulness with my body and deep appreciation for it. But that also made me think like, while we have someone like Amber talking with us, Amber, what would you say to our listeners who are having a hard time sitting still? Like, uh, what have you done to cultivate that practice? I think one of the things is just being honest about the difficulty of sitting still. Uh, I I do some meditations um, and I struggle like as someone who operates um, on a really high level of anxiety all the time with sitting still because it, it, I, all of the things that I haven't done just creep up, you know, late at night, early in the morning when I'm eating breakfast. Um, And one of the things that I've noticed too, is when I pretend like it's not happening, it makes it worse. So um, one of the things that I've started to do late at night, because I've, I've started to kind of have not panic attacks, which I've, I've definitely had many of those, but I have these moments where my heart just kind of, my heartbeat feels like it's rising really quickly. Um, and that makes me nervous. And then I think about, oh shit, what didn't I do? And so what I've started to do is just like write down some of the things that I haven't done that have been on my to-do list for a long time. And then I literally take those post-its out of my room and put them somewhere else in the house. And just that like activity has really actually like, it sounds weird, but it has really like allowed me to chill out. Like these stressors do not belong here. And it wasn't even intentional. I was just like, you know, nothing is working for me. I'm not sleeping. What can I do? And I tried that. And so far, you know, it's been it's been really helping. And so I would just say, be honest about when stillness is super challenging. Like, don't try to pretend like it's not, you know, some folks do affirmations and things. Um, but really, uh, what I would encourage people to do is like, think about what kind of relationship with their rest they want to have. And what kind of relationship they want to have with stillness. And also think about... Um, what familial relationships with rest and stillness have looked like? How are we socialized towards or against rest? What are the like larger components of, you know, especially like for folks of color, it's like, you know, we have to always be producing. We have to always be producing, even when, you know, we, you know, potentially meet a space where our needs are met, we still have to be productive. So the, lo- the short version is be honest about when, you know, stillness is not as accessible to you and then try it anyway. I like quickly grab my pen to write down that line. These stressors do not belong here. And I feel like that is just like something I need to remind myself when those things come up and to be willing to like wade into why it's coming up. Yeah, especially because, you know, we've most of us have been home far more often than we usually are. And so we have to be able to set boundaries within our spaces, not just within our bodies and how we're interacting with them. Um, and not just with how we interact with other people, but also like, where are we doing the most of our, you know, where are we doing our work? Are we doing our work sometimes in bed? Because 
we just don't want to get up or are we doing it in bed because it's the most accessible and, you know, kind of navigating relationships around like laziness and productivity and how a lot of those are really ableist um, designations is also very challenging. Absolutely. And I think what people are forgetting too, in terms of these moments, like you said, you know, your heart might be racing at night and I've definitely experienced that is that it's, it's grief and it's pain that's bubbling up too from a year that, you know, has in many ways just been very painful moments that have been stolen, the joys of being together that don't exist anymore. And I didn't even realize how much I was holding that in my own body until last year I was able to attend a remote grief circle that you held and just being able to wail, to name the things that I'm just angry and I'm upset about and I'm grieving. So would love to hear a little bit more about how the pandemic has shaped your own relationship with grief and how you're still attending to it. Oof, y'all have some good questions. <laughs> um, I think I feel like there have been there have been um, several people who I've lost in this last year um, due to, you know, it's not just specifically COVID, but the the impacts of COVID and how devastating they have been specifically, you know, for black and brown and indigenous communities. Um, and that means, you know, friends have had um, mental health crises. Um, it means that, you know, my cousin passed away uh, in April, right when shelter in place last year um, went into effect in California from cancer. And we have yet to have a service for her because of all of that. Um, and she lived in Long Beach. And so I think part of it is that like grieving never stops. Um, and, and we never stop losing people. At least for me, it feels like it's it's always continuous and it's not even just the folks that we've recently lost, but how those losses um, are kind of compacted and expanded in a way where I lost my grandmother who was, you know, who I was very close with three years ago in October, on October 4th. Um, and with that loss you know, when you lose someone who's like very, very um, monumental in your life, um, there's the guilt of the living or the guilt of experiencing pleasure. So there's that part. But I think in this last year, I feel like I'm grieving her all over again. I'm grieving both because I know that if she were here, if she were alive, she would be staying with me because she's an elder and I would make sure that, you know, uh, she was safe. She had groceries, you know, you know, housing and all of that. And then at the same time, I'm grateful that she doesn't have to experience a lot of the heartbreak that so many of us have had to experience in this last year. Um, and also the ways that we've had to arm ourselves around, um, around grief and arm ourselves against vulnerability, especially when a lot of us, um, you know, who are not essential workers, who are not in physical spaces with other people for the most part are working from home and are, and I think 
working from home never really feels like what it is to me because it's like where I come from and who my people are, um, inviting someone into your home is a very sacred act. And yet I'm on these Zoom calls all the time with folks I've had to, you know, consent into allowing into my home and vice versa. And also recognizing that sometimes that those don't feel safe, you know, that that kind of relationship or practice doesn't feel real, if that makes sense. Or it's not, it definitely isn't ideal, but um, I think we lose some of the reality of that sacredness because we are on these Zoom calls all the time and now it's just expected. Um, But that's why I think also the boundary part that I was talking about earlier is so important because we have to be able to set those in our relationships, whether that be professional or personal, um, and also with ourselves. So, I mean, I'm always attending to my grief. Um, I'm I'm attending to it sometimes in the sense of like tending and um, listening and allowing my grief to kind of guide me. And allowing my heart to be um, present in all of the spaces I'm engaged in or active in. Um, And then I'm also attending to it and being honest about the fact that there's still some, there are still components of my grief that I'm not ready to face yet because it's so devastating. And I don't know what I, who I am, what my identity is, and also if I will survive it, if I am completely uh, devastated, to be honest. Wow, thank you so much for walking us through that and telling us about how you are processing and just tending to this grief. I definitely feel like I definitely need to do that. I. I've always been someone to shy a little bit away from processing my processing my grief just you know to make sure that I can continue moving forward and sometimes it does feel a little bit easier to ignore it, ignore it as opposed to dealing with it and then you know getting through it um I've definitely felt like most recently just having this all like this grief really bundle up um, for me, especially since the shooting in Atlanta and just seeing all the um, violence against Asian elders and Asian people. And it seems like it's every every day I wake up and there's like something new um, happening to the Asian community. And so it's like, I haven't, I think maybe that's why I haven't been able to sit still and like rest because I'm just constantly thinking about it and trying to get through it. But then also you know, maybe feeling guilty that all of this stuff is happening, yet I am sitting here, you know, resting. But I know that's not the right relationship to have with it. And so just hearing you talking about how you're handling the grief um, that, you know, you've gone through these past few years and still the ones that you have left left to process really makes me think about how I need to definitely tend um, to myself in this because there's so much grief that's happening um, to me personally in some respects, but just collectively as well, I feel like there's so much that our nation and our world really needs to sit and grapple with. And I don't think, you know, enough people are doing that because we're just trying to get through. And I hope that 
you know, by sitting down and processing all of this, we can actually make some meaning out of the out of this collective grief that we've all been experiencing and not just hiding it away. And I know that's something I'm doing, just trying to hide away from it and all of that. But definitely, you know, hearing you speak, I want to commit to sitting down with my feelings, pausing, and then processing all these processing all of these things that I'm feeling. So thank you so much for for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Vina. Yeah, and, and Vina, even thinking about like it is every day something new that is going on in the Asian community, and it, it becomes very overwhelming, especially when people are playing it over and over and over again and want you to like consume these videos. And you know, I, I hope there's going to be space to feel that grief um, together as a you know a community uh, as well. And just you know, I had to pause Amber after your talking because I just felt that so deeply and just felt like this this heaviness in my body but also a little bit of that hope that like through the grief comes something that is worth salvaging something that's worth like keep going from and one of the things that's happened often to me in my life is I'll get a very strong message from someone who I don't know and I feel like you know like God and my ancestors are placing that person for me to hear it and I remember being at an airport and I don't know how I got in a conversation with this woman, but she was talking to me about how she's like, no one's died from facing it, but you can die from not facing it. And, you know, she's like, so you need to, to face those things and you don't have to face it all at once. She's like, but you need to start confronting it. And it was a moment in which I needed to hear it about some things that I was just trying to, you know, keep at arm's length, but I needed to actually embrace and sit with, you know, whether it's my anxiety or my pain or my grief, just letting it sit next to me, uh, and tending to it and facing it. Cause I do think that's true. You know, that no one has died from facing it, but you know, you can wither away from, from not actually making that something that you look at in the face because there has to be something on the other side of our grief. Yeah. And you know, grief is an acknowledgement. It doesn't mean that, you know, everything gets better, but it means that you are no longer ignoring that part, that hurt, that loss. Um, and capitalism and white supremacy are really great at ensuring that we don't, you know, we don't feel our feelings and that we don't really feel and sit with those losses. Um, and, you know, in COVID times during this pandemic, you know, all of these um, Amazon um uh, and all these billionaires are just making more and more and more money. And it's such a lucrative, a lucrative game that really harms our communities. And, you know, with the, the shootings and um, anti-Asian violence that are happening right now, it's both, you know, a moment where, you know, everyone is really specifically like Asian folks are really holding their breath. And in another moment, it's also like, wow. You know, there's so much solidarity and strength that's happening, right? Uh, displays of strength and support that are happening right now where people are, you know, showing up and escorting elders. People are speaking out against anti-Asian sentiments and like xenophobia. And so there are opportunities to we grieve collectively and also um, um, be in solidarity. And I'm really grateful, especially in Oakland and the Bay Area, to see the ways that folks are really talking about this. And 
the rise in um, anti-Asian violence that has happened and has been going on for such a long time. It's just that um, it hasn't been represented in the mainstream media until now. Yeah. And speaking of solidarity, I've just seen so many like Black leaders come out and support. And I just really hope that this is a moment where, you know, we see more of Black Asian solidarity coming together because at the root of it is really just white supremacy that's like has pitted our communities against each other for so long. And, um, you know, I think within this year, as terrible as it has been, I've definitely seen a lot more instances of our communities coming together. So I really hope that also continues. Well, well, that's why we're here telling these stories, because the more stories that we tell of what this looks like, the more people see what's possible, you know, because there's, there's so much, you know, it's easy to talk about the opposite, but I always ground people back into like, that's not my reality in Oakland. And I hope that that cannot be the reality in other places as well, because we're, we're doing the work together in community here. Well, speaking of community and just thinking about, you know, how sometimes we're without our community and we're left alone by ourselves right now. You talk a lot in your piece about how our ancestors navigated isolation, which many of us are feeling deeply right now. Uh, And the way that you talked about it in your piece made me feel deeply peaceful and hopeful. And would love for you to share with our listeners, what are some of your favorite stories you hold to of how our ancestors navigated isolation? Oh, that's great. Um, so one, one, I'm always brought back to food. Uh, food is a way that um, black women in particular, um, even before slavery, but, but, you know, also during, during slavery um, would, you know, send their food to their family members, send food that they made with their hands to family members because they were cooking for, you know, typically um, slave masters or white folks. And so while they couldn't be physically in a place, they were there both in the sense of the gifts that they brought, but also the spirit of who they are in their presence. And that's also done, um, folks have done that through song, through letters, through oral storytelling and traditions, um, through scents. Uh, not just cooking scents, but also like, you know, flowers or tea. Um, There's so much uh, history in tea and tea making. Um, And I think a lot about the ways that folks have um, shown up for each other when they couldn't physically show up for each other. Uh, And with my, uh, my Nana, she was, um, she was studying, she was a nurse and she, she, she really kind of was going to move into being a doctor except, you know, racism. So she didn't, but, um, she would have this huge book that she would pull out from under her bed late at night. She get calls from literally everywhere from, you know, down the street, across the country, outside of the country. And no matter what time, um, folks called, she got up, she put her house slippers on. She got her low robe jacket. She pulled out that big, big, big book, medical book. She asked folks what their symptoms were because a lot of these folks didn't have access to doctors. 
whether that because there wasn't any insurance, because they didn't trust the doctors, because um, they didn't have money or and or because they couldn't travel to to get um, access to hospitals. She moved into that space and operated as their like caretaker from a remote space. And so people called her for years. She did this for, you know, my Nana, when she passed, she was 91. She did it for over 70 years. And um, she inspired a lot of my cousins and aunties to uh, be caretakers and nurses. And I think a lot about her when, and have thought a lot about her over this last year too, but just how devastating and... um, lonely isolation can be because she did this, you know, she was in a, a, um, a physically and emotionally abusive relationship with my grandfather and she left him. And, um, so she would do this in the house, in her house. Um, and she was dealing with the isolation, you know, and, uh, being separated and, and all of that. And so I, 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 kind of hone in and um, go back to those kinds of stories because I'm sure we have those stories in our families, even though they haven't been told yet. Well, I love that, especially about just food in in general and, you know, food as a way of bringing people uh, together. I know Vina and I really bonded and came together over our love of food. Well, Amber, um, you know, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, One of the last areas I wanted to make sure we got to talk to you about because it really stands out in your piece is, and when we were re-listening to it, we're like, wow, she lists like, I think something like maybe it was like 20,000, 200,000 deaths in the U.S. And the number of deaths in the U.S. from COVID is far greater now than when you originally recorded your piece and too many of these are black and brown bodies, like too, too many. And when you write about the ways in which we are complicit in the deaths of others, how have your thoughts continued to be shaped on that as that number of COVID deaths and COVID-related deaths continues to rise? Ooh, yeah. Um, yeah, we're at, we're at what, uh, 600,000 or more now? I don't remember. Yeah, I believe so. Um. Yeah, I think capitalism can be really disgusting and ableism as well because it it the hierarchy is really, you know, um quote unquote like able-bodied folks up, disabled, immunocompromised, um neurodivergent folks below and it's really a thing about power. Um so much is about power in this idea of this this idea because it's not really true but it 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 is in the sense of like it's impacted so many conditions for so many lives um uh how people move into scarcity and how you know the u.s government in particular has been really great at uh uh scarcity modeling and justifying you know violence through um languages of scarcity or interventions when they go places to, you know, essentially, um, start wars or, you know, kill civilians, um, and, uh, commit terrorism. Um, and, you know, I mean, that, that's happening in the U S as well. And, 
uh, I think, you know, Donald Trump for sure really facilitated in a lot of these deaths and he gaslit a lot of people and a lot of communities. Um, and then his supporters pushed for, um, uh, these ideas that like, you know, the wearing, being required to wear a mask violates your first amendment, right? Um, instead of, uh, what an abundant response would be is, oh, wearing a mask protects myself and others, which means there will be less death. There will be more community building and more possibilities. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the, the number that (laughs) it's really scary. The number that, uh, I mentioned before is I don't even I'm not good at math so I can't even say how many times that is but it's scary um and I think you know finally there have been some um some studies um uh that have shown that at least a quarter of the black and brown folks um who have died from covid uh those those deaths were preventable which so many of us know already, right? When we think about access resources, we think about resource hoarding. Absolutely. Um, and when we think about like healthcare and then also um, maltreatment and uh, racism within the medical system. Um, yeah, it's, I don't even know how to answer it. I think yeah. the pandemic is just, it compounds everything. All of the ways that we have to labor to go through this world that we shouldn't have to do. The pandemic just compounded all of it. And so much of my grief is wrapped up in anger, anger at these deaths that were preventable, anger at the selfishness and the cruelness of people who just did not do the things that they needed to do to keep other people safe. And I find myself having far different relationships with people or none at all with those who I feel like really acted in harmful ways for others. Absolutely. And also like, um, you know, uh, act, act as if specific folks' lives are disposable or that, you know, um, disabled people are um, being overly cautious or paranoid when, you know, the reality is like we know what this world is and we know the ways that um, we, we've we been gaslit into thinking that uh, that we're overreacting. And for survivors and for so many members in our communities, we know how violent that, that um that representation is it's it's really scary yeah definitely but you know just thinking about like we we know and we've always known and we're not forgetting and we continue to organize and protect each other against what others allow to happen and you know we're going to continue to create our own systems to ensure that more of us can survive and, and focus on our joy more than this grief But thank you again, Amber, so much for being with us today. Just brought up so much for both Vina and myself and also for our listeners to think about grief, to think about um, the ways in which we need to protect ourselves and protect each other uh, and just how the things that we're going through, there's there's so many of our ancestors and people before us who have showed us a way and we just need to use those blueprints to build our own. Absolutely. And we will.
The thing I love about matcha and also just hearing all these beautiful stories from women of color and being in conversation with them is it just makes me feel like I can take on the world. Like I just feel so energized and so motivated and inspired to get out there and, you know, make some stuff happen. And I, I was thinking actually it would be fun for us to, you know, since this is our last sort of official episode um, of like featuring stories by women of color, um, it'd be fun for us to maybe revisit some of the things that we said we would do <laughs> in conversation with, with others, you know, you and I were like, Oh yeah, we'll do this. Oh yeah, we'll do that. So. I'm oh yeah. You know, <laughs> as someone who used to be a teacher, I feel like this is some kind of like summative assessment and I'm already feeling anxious. <laughs> what did I say I would do? So yeah, so I can recap a little bit. Let's see the first episode we talked about the first episode was also touch, right? And was it, Something about hugs. We did. We said we were bringing hugs back. We hugs and back. We also, we talked about waking up at 5 or 6 a.m. in the morning. I will be the first to say that I have not been doing that. My alarm will go off at 6 a.m. I will look outside. I would see that it was still dark. I would tell my alarm to wake me up again at 7 or 8, and I would go back to bed. I Yeah. I, you know, I was really like, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it because I hear like all the great writers like wake up at 6 a.m. to finish, to do their writing. But I did it once to um, have a call with an artist in Vietnam, and that was the only time that worked for them, myself, and another person in New York City. And it was brutal. Like that day was just awful. I couldn't do it. So that I did it. We tried, but maybe that's not something we continue. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to vote for a no. On yeah, that yeah, yeah. Uh, the second one was, I think, on breathing. Yeah, so that one I've definitely been spending more time thinking about my breathing. So, you know, I talked in that episode about how I will pause and be like, wow, I've been breathing really shallow uh, for the last hour. Mm -hmm. And I think I just get like so into this, you know, mode of work that I'm just like doing work, but not like sitting in a moment. And I've been thinking so much about what Uni said about being able to just enjoy things that usually would seem very mundane. And I've been trying to in the morning or just like stop and take a break during my work day and just look at something and appreciate it or sit outside on my balcony with a cup of tea and just enjoy hearing the birds, just sitting there, you know, with my plants and not needing to do anything and just slowing down and being with my breath in that moment and you know, it's a combination of, you know, Uni's piece, but also Joyce's piece about breathing and, and Avatar. And just both of those have been coming together to help me slow down, focus on my breath and come back to myself. Yeah. And also, I think you were going to give Cora a chance. Is that something <laughs> you've had a chance to do? I didn't, but it makes me think about, you know, we both kind of touched on a little bit thinking about like, what are the moments that we're still holding on to mm -hmm. uh, for joy and, and watching things. And, you know, I watched two shows that you suggested to <gasps> me uh, during this first season. So true beauty, um, <laughs> which was, which was great. I watched oh, my Paula. best boy. I love him. <laughs> yes. Yes. Vita, please summarize this show for our viewers. Okay. The premise y'all isn't that great. Um, but it's a Korean drama and it, it talks about this young girl. She's a teenager um, and she finds herself to be very unattractive. So she learns how to do makeup and suddenly she becomes the school beauty 
And then she has, you know, these two beautiful boys like fighting over her. And the boy that I have a crush on, although he is a high school student in the show, he is a 30 year old man in real life. So I feel like that's appropriate. Yes. Hit them with the facts. <laughs> Hit them with the facts. And it's just, it's just so fun. And I mean, there are some elements on there that is very triggering for folks. So I do want to put a warning out there at the early episodes. And there are a lot of toxic image, toxic things that you have to think about in terms of beauty standards and all of that, especially in South Korea. But overall, for me, I was just like, you know what? I just need this. I just need to enjoy this. And it was it was so much fun. Uh, Han So Jun is my, my my favorite boy. Oh. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I didn't love him as much as you, but he is great in the show. And uh, it was just a really fun time. And um, the other one I watched was Crash Landing on You, uh, which I cried every episode. You need to watch it on Netflix. It's like, you know, a South Korean woman ends up in North Korea. There's like a love story and it's just amazing. I had my mom watch it. She finished it in like three days. She loved it. And I still, last night I went back and watched some episodes just so I could cry again about them. It's so beautiful. (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I feel like I need a good cry. It's been a while since I cried. Just because I feel like I'm so numb, but oh, that show is so good. You see, you got the two best ones. Those are like two of my favorites. If you want to get back to like old, old school drama that like middle school Vina watched, I would recommend Full House that I've seen like five times already. So I don't really, re- I don't really rewatch dramas, but that one I have rewatched. And Vina, I remember you were working on like getting a chaotic friend because you were like, oh, I was thinking maybe I could be your chaotic friend, but feel like she would have needed to meet me a couple years ago when I was living in Miami. And I could only be like a fourth of a chaotic friend now. So like, how'd that search go? You know, I think what's kind of crazy is like sometimes when you just manifest these things, it just happens. Like when we were in conversation with um, Brittany, we talked about the chaotic friend. And then when we were in conversation with Ava, we talked about trying new things with our hair. And so in terms of a chaotic, chaotic friendship, um, yeah, my chaotic friend showed up and this is a friend that I had always known. And then out of nowhere, um, he was just kind of like, Hey, I'm here. And I was like, Hey, you're chaotic. I never noticed. This is great. So yeah, it's, it's good. You know, I mean, we can't get up to much chaos because of COVID, but I'm glad to know that he's there and that we can get up to some trouble. So, but I want to know, like, how are you defining a chaotic friend? Like, what would be the markers of someone who could fill that need for a chaotic friend? I think I need someone. I'm, I'm so, I'm such a cautious person. Like, you know, <laughs> very risk averse. Like, always thinking about, like, oh, well, what, what if scenarios and worst case and all that. I just need someone who's just like, let's go, let's do it, like, fuck it, like, let's just make it happen. Yeah, I just need like someone who like will get up to like trouble with me, who is like not not easily embarrassed or afraid. Someone who's gonna like dance and sing wildly with me. So you know, just those kind of things. Fearless folks. Okay, I remember. I'll add some elements of being a chaotic friend when we go on our BTS adventure. <laughs> yeah, and then and then on the hair piece, like my uh, my friend had a sleepover with. She gave me the hair chalk that Ava was talking about. Like, she's like, oh, I have this hair chalk. You should just try it. I was like, oh, I just learned about these things. And so I'm going to try it one day. We'll see when I'm feeling a little, um, you know, a little cute. Oh, I was hoping you'd already tried it so you can share with our listeners, like, how things have been going. No, I, you know, I've been, I've been, like, just sitting around in, like, exercise clothes all day. To be honest, I'm not even wearing pants right now. I just finished working out and I'm just, like, sitting 
in my underwear. So it's like, I, I, I haven't really been trying to be cute or like look like I'm going anywhere. Um, and then my friend actually got me hair mayonnaise to put in my hair to like help, um, help me with the, like the dryness of my hair. So I was like, wow, you know, we manifested things on this podcast. And then all of a sudden they just appeared like within the span of like two weeks. It's magic. I'm saying this podcast is magic. You should be manifesting things and hopefully they will come. <laughs> yeah, no, I would say that, you know, I talked about when we were chatting with Ava about, you know, just coming to terms with, you know, losing hair. Mm-hmm. I will say that my hair is growing back, Ooh. which is great, but also like keeping that balance between um, not being like, cause you know, who would I be if it wasn't growing back, if I was still losing it? So, you know, keeping that mm-hmm. balance of like, I'm grateful that my hair can return, but also, um, I could lose it again. And just like knowing, you know, keeping that very balanced relationship with my hair and just continuing to work on, on that. And, uh, yeah, but it just feels nice to, you know, try some like new styles and stuff out and not feel like I have to like hide it back in a ponytail all the time. And so just, yeah, I was thinking about her story just the other day. Yeah, I, that's what I love about, you know, our podcast is I, I think about these stories and I think about our conversations so often. And it just, it feels so great, especially now to be in community with women of color. Like I think, especially, you know, just thinking about what all the tragic things that have happened within this month, like um, together, but just in general, this whole year, it's just women of color have just really showed up and for my, for me, and it's just, I've been really grateful to be in this community um, with one another. Cause I, I don't know how I would get through this without, you know, without it. So. Yeah. And that's just, and that's why we need each other in these stories. Uh, when everyone was talking about mm-hmm. what was going on with a missing woman, I believe her name was Sarah in the UK and, you know, people started talking a lot again about the fear women have in navigating spaces and, and going out and wondering if they'll return home. And a friend of mine reached out and she's like, yeah, these stories really hit home, but they especially hit home as a woman Mm -hmm. of color thinking about if we went missing, who would look for us, you know, like, would we be making the rounds on the TV? And my first thought was we would, we would look for each other. And that's why we're forming these communities. And that's why it's important to have spaces where we share our stories, where we um, Mm -hmm. form these bonds together, because we've always been doing that. And like, that's why we're still here. That's why we're still building. That's why, Mm -hmm. you know, as Alice Walker said, we're writing letters that maybe we won't be able to read, but our daughters will. And, you know, if it comes a time that harm is done to one of us or that we disappear, like we're showing up. And we're very powerful and whoever it wishes ill against us, like would need to watch mm-hmm. out because like we're much stronger than their like negative energy and, and will towards us ever could be. I've, I've always, you know, really uh, been amazed and inspired by women of color, but I think I, I especially feel it so, um, so deeply when the shooting in Atlanta happened and it was like my women of color friends that reached out first. And it's like, we're all hurting yet we are all still looking out for each other. And like part of me felt so grateful for that, but part of me felt really angry. It's like, you know, you see women of color out there like educating, fighting, doing all this work um, on behalf of the victims. And it's like, I'm so amazed by them to have the energy and the strength and the courage to do that when they're still trying to heal. Yet, like I maybe heard from like a few of my white friends 
you know, or like maybe, maybe I just don't have that many white friends or, but yeah, it's just like, how is it that, and I think that's what makes me so angry. It's that like, we are all hurting as women of color. Like there's been so much violence done upon us for since forever. And especially within the span of this year, yet we are always having to do the work. We're out there educating folks. We're, we're out there like, you know, serving as like DEI consultants and things like that. And we're all like working to heal one another. Um, and I'm grateful for that. But it just makes me like so angry, like white people step it up. Like, what are you doing? Yep. That's always a question, you know, but as we're closing out season one, I think that's a good place to leave it. (laughs) Our non-women of color listeners, like where, you know, especially, you know, white listeners, like ask yourself, like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, it's more than just what you're saying. It's like, what are you doing? How are you making sure that there are spaces for these stories? How are you stepping aside? How are you seeding power? How are you seeding space? And for our women of color listeners, like we got y'all. Uh, I hope you've been, have seen yourself and felt like inspired and drawn to these stories. And we hope to hear you and more of your stories in season two. Thank you for listening to TN Transitions, brewing good stories down to the very last drop.